Welcome to the In Common Podcast. This is Hadley Post. This Insight episode comes from full episode 102 with Erin O'Donnell. Erin is an early career academic fellow at Melbourne Law School at the University of Melbourne, where she is a water law and policy specialist focusing on water markets and governance. Here, Erin and Michael discuss the evolution of how the environment is seen and understood within the legal framework, as well as the differences between Western and Indigenous understandings of the environment and what that means for the rights of nature movement as a whole. This is the In Common Podcast. I'd love to start with this framework that you introduce. It did, it did a lot of sense making for me, and I noticed, Erin, that um, the word legibility does a lot of work for you yeah. in this book. And so I think it'd be helpful to start with that word and hear from you what work it is doing for you. I should mention that in this podcast, I think I mentioned James Scott's work about every episode and that's his book seemed like a state is where I first encountered the idea of legibility and it's had a huge influence on me in thinking about what is seen and what is not seen and why. And legibility is one of these words that you have to talk about legibility of something to someone. And you talk, you talk about the legibility of the environment to the law. And so can we start with, with this question? Um, what is the significance of the word legibility to you in this work? And can you explicitly unpack that statement? What does it mean for um, the environment to become more legible to the law? So to begin with the idea of legibility, for me, what I like about it is that it brings in two concepts. One is visibility. So the idea of being seen um, and, and being seen by law. I'm going to come back to why that matters. But the other aspect of it for me is comprehensibility. So not just visibility, but actually being understood or at least being seen in a way that the viewer can understand. So making the environment legible to law is a way of saying you're you're really bringing it into the legal sphere in a way that the law can then make sense of it and engage with it on a deeper level as law rather than simply kind of skirting the edges of the environment. And so when we think about the way that the environment um, has been historically defined in law, it begins with the sort of the absence of definition in a lot of ways. It doesn't form part of a lot of the early common law. Um, The only places that the law really sees it is through the actions of others. And when that started to change in the sort of 60s and 70s around the world when we had this enormous upwelling of environmental law statute, it began to transition into, again, this kind of inchoate legal concept, which was, you know, the environment which is out there, it's often very... Um, very vaguely defined, and again, it tends to be seen through the actions of others. So although recognising it as a concept in law was the beginning of that legibility, I would argue that for certainly for Western legal systems, for common law jurisdictions like Australia, like the US, the pinnacle of comprehensibility and visibility to the law is the legal person. So it was only once the environment began to attract the attributes of a legal person that it truly became legible to law. 
Right. And this idea that you mentioned a few times of the environment only being seen through the impacts on people, this very anthropocentric perspective. So my understanding there, and I've seen this in Christopher Stone's writing too, is it's, it's a very, I don't want to say backwards, but indirect or instrumental way of valuing the environment. It only, you only care about the environment insofar as it impacts the interests of a person whose own interests are valued by the law. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's this very meandering way to, to actually tar- start to care about the environment. Yeah, and you miss a whole lot. So that was Christopher Stone's argument, is that he said, if the only environmental impacts that matter are those that can be measured against a human impact, then you miss the vast majority of impacts to the ecosystem. So if a species goes extinct, but humans don't really notice, or it doesn't have a material impact on a specific individual that actually brings a case, then the law can't see it, the law can't really take it into account. Now, there's a number of ways that people have found workarounds to this idea since he's been writing, um, you know, since 1972, including increasing the, the standing arrangements that enable peak environmental bodies, for instance, to start bringing the interests of the environment into the court. But it's still, yeah, it's still a bit of a workaround. Um, it's still trying to come up with ways to enable someone to speak for the environment rather than the law actually acknowledging that the environment is itself a living entity or a legal entity with rights and interests of its own. Okay. So Aaron, can you walk me through this framework that I mentioned that talks about, and you kind of describe this as a process of first conceptualizing the environment as what you refer to as a social ecological concept. And I'll admit that that's, that part of the framework is fuzzier for me than the other parts. Yeah. And then you have going from that to the environmentist object, and that's a space of some but incomplete legibility, in my, and that's kind of how I understand it. And then there's kind of fuller leg, of legibility, which is the environment as subject, kind of what you're already talking about, the environment as seen as kind of a legal person, um, not needing protection as an object through the actions of other people, but having kind of its own um, agency and rights. Can you walk me through um, the process that the framework describes? Yeah, so I came to this framework through the question of what does it mean for the environment to be recognised in law as a legal person? Why does it matter? Why does it feel like it changes things? And so for me, it helped to see that, that shift in the context of the history of the way that the law has both recognised, engaged with and constructed the environment within a legal context. So beginning with the idea of that socio-ecological idea, concept of the environment, for the law, understanding the environment as as an entity, even if it's a a really vague um, conceptual entity, That was a major shift. So that was the big shift of the environmental law movement in the 60s and 70s, was to say the law actually does need to look at the world around us, see it in its holistic way, and understand that the world around us is something that we need to start protecting and or at least being cognizant of. So that was the the big breakthrough of those early environmental laws, was saying it's not just about um, torts or nuisance or individualized legal actions that certainly 
uh, pick up some of the impacts to the environment. Um, you can certainly pollute um, with noise or with noxious chemicals, and that can end up with a, a legal action in terms of nuisance. But that's a very private right style action. So this said, the environment is a collective good. Um, it's a collective way of looking at the world. We are starting to see impacts to it at that scale, at that sort of holistic level. Um, it drew very much on the ideas from uh, Rachel Carson's work, obviously, seeing the world around us in a collective way and recognising that the scale of human impact was affecting the environment as a whole. And so those early laws were an attempt by the law to say, well, we can actually begin to conceptualise within law what the environment means. Now, it is vague because I think the, the early legal framers really struggled to actually get a handle on what they meant. So in, in some cases, they were extremely specific um, and actually listed out all of the elements of the environment. In other cases, it was left really broad um, and quite flexible. So in some ways, yeah, like both of those things have, have pluses and minuses. If you get very, very specific, then it can actually be hard to see the forest for the trees, um, you know, often literally, because if you enumerate all of the specific elements of the environment, you can very quickly, I think, end up in a death by a thousand cuts. You know, we might be impacting this little bit, but how do we put that into the context of the whole? On the other hand, if you've got an environmental definition, which is very vague, it can also be really difficult to understand what kinds of impacts actually matter. The flip side of that, of course, is that those, those vague definitions hook into what people understand the environment to be, and that's social construction of the environment. And so that's why I say it's, it's a socio-ecological concept, because it's very much what human beings choose to understand the environment as, and then what human beings choose to articulate the environment as in law. And so it's it's making that connection back into human narratives and, and the power of a cultural narrative to underpin and shape what the law ends up seeing. And so once you've established that as a groundwork, then the law was able to start to progress beyond that. I mean, it sounds like one piece of this is a growing recognition of interdependence and the ways in which people can affect each other through their treatment of the environment. I think, yeah, it is in the sense that it's it definitely came through, like a lot of the early environmental movements were driven by communities who were saying actually the impacts of um, corporate pollution, for instance, are so significant and substantive that we actually need a law that sees that in a more holistic way rather than having each of us try and band together to, to run a class action in nuisance or to try and protect our individual rights. So there's definitely a collective element in there. I think the, yeah, the interdependence one, I think, is one that's almost, it runs alongside another idea which has shaped environmental law, and that's the concept of wilderness. And so the reason why I'm, yeah, wanting to draw that out is because I think the idea of wilderness itself is also one which rejects people. So mm. it's a really colonial construct of what the environment is, but the environmental advocacy movement has been driven both by communities saying, you know, we deserve the right to clean air and healthy water and a safe place to live, but also um, environmentalists saying we need to protect wilderness. And we do, but um, defining wilderness by the absence of people is where I, I get a little bit nervous. 
No, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me, Aaron. It's been something that I've been struggling with as I've been di digesting this literature on rights to nature, because it seems like, and while we're talking about it, why don't we go down this path a little bit? It, it seems like you could go one of two pretty different directions with that idea. You could say, like in the case of the Wanganui River, right? The, the recognition of the rights of this river are in fact a reflection of kind of a, a, a symbiotic or holistic relationship between humans and nature. Not, as, not assuming that it's a win-lose relationship, that humans are necessarily hurting nature. And my understanding of that case is that, that, that idea, those ideas are built into the motivation for the granting of rights to that river. That it's not saying the river is apart from people and we need to protect it as a pristine wilderness without people. It's kind of doing the opposite. And we, I agree my understanding is that in the history of a lot of environmentalism has moved in the opposite direction saying... Uh, it's, it's, it's as you said, we're assuming that humans are detrimental to nature, and so we need to protect nature from humans. And you could see a rights to nature movement heading down that very different path. And that's something that I haven't reconciled in my own head, what tilts this discourse in one direction versus the other. So, yeah, there's, there's a few different threads to pull on there. Um, a couple of examples to really explore that connection between the rights of nature and the rights of people. The Colombian case, the Rio Atrato River, the reasoning behind that case, the, the reason why that river is now recognised as having rights is because the Constitutional Court decided that the only way to protect the constitutional rights of the communities that lived along and, and depended on that river, and these were communities that they're minority groups, so some of them are former uh, descendants of former slaves and others are indigenous communities, both of which have special protections under Colombian law. The court decided that the best way to protect their rights was to recognise the rights of the river and to see them in that biocultural framework. So there is a very strong relationship between um, the rights of nature and the rights of human beings. And it's it's often, not solely obviously, but it's most often um, Indigenous communities that are expressing that relationship most strongly. So in Australia, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people say country needs people. And country is an Aboriginal English term to describe all the world around us. And uh, an Aboriginal philosopher, Mary Graham, uh, she's a Condonbury woman, she lives in Queensland in Australia. She describes the definition of humanity for Indigenous peoples as defined by firstly, their relationship to country, and secondly, their relationship to human beings. And she says the first of those is the most important. It's your relationship to the world around you, which is actually the essence of your humanity. And that's, that's very, very different to the way that a lot of Western societies construct our understanding of, of humanity. Um, we're often a lot more individualist. We tend to focus on rights of the individual. We have legal processes that are defined by our ability to um, navigate those, those times when rights come into conflict. Whereas what I'm seeing in a lot of Indigenous cultures, again, not, not in a, a kind of pan-Indigenous way because they all express it differently, but that interdependence um, between people and place, that mutual obligation, that co-creation of country, that people um, 
people do with country is something that, that comes through very strongly. The, the risk with the rights of nature movement, and it is a, a space in which many Indigenous peoples and people have expressed deep concern and mistrust because they see, particularly in colonial context, the recognition of nature's legal rights as yet another opportunity to exclude their rights and their connection to country. So the environmental, yeah, the environmental movement um, has, has a lot of proud history, but unfortunately one of the common threads is that it tends to be, tends to be white people, it tends to be wealthy white people, and I don't think the environmental movement has fully reckoned with the racist elements that have underpinned some of its actions at some time. And I think the, the concept of wilderness is one that continues to, to occupy that space of systemic racism. Thanks for tuning in. The In Common podcast is a partner project of the International Association for the Study of the Commons and the International Journal of the Commons. To explore more episodes of the podcast, as well as our blog, visit our website at www.incommonpodcast.org. Here you will also find a list of the members of our recently expanded team, as well as a link to our Patreon page, where you can make a small donation to help us cover our operating costs. You can also follow us on Twitter at InCommonPod.